Okay, we're going to let you guys go to a junior church, okay? All right, as they're getting on their way, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. Let's begin reading it together this morning in verse 1. <clears throat> Topic of our discussion this morning is, are you faithful? Are you faithful as a servant of Christ? Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. And when he says the secret things of God, he simply means that which was previously hidden and now has been exposed through the work of the apostles. That ultimately is this, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he then says, Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And He will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each one will receive His praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The word of the Lord. Are you, am I, a faithful servant of Christ? How can I tell if my life is as devoted to Christ as it should be? How can I tell if I am fulfilling the God-given calling and command upon my life? I think one of the things that is helpful in, in, in gaining an understanding of God's expectation for His children is to identify how Paul speaks of himself as a servant and as a steward of Christ. Two words that he uses to describe himself. He's an apostle but when he speaks about himself, he doesn't apply to himself very often the title that gives him authority. Instead, he labels himself with two words that talk about submission and service. Notice what they are. Verse 1 of chapter 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. <clears throat> what is Paul conscious of? Paul's conscious of the human tendency to want to give people labels of authority. And Paul fights back against that tendency by using two titles to describe himself that indicate people who serve under an authority. People who live in submission to a higher authority. They have a higher source of direction and purpose in their lives. The first word he uses in verse 1 is a servant. One who is entrusted with specific responsibilities and typically functions with an attitude of humility. They understand that to be called a servant means to be one who waits on and seeks to meet the needs of others. A definition of ministry that I've shared with you from time to time that I picked up at my home church was this. 
Ministry is sensing and meeting needs. Ministry is sensing and meeting needs. That's what a servant does. A servant observes a situation and finds a way to plug in so that their presence will become a benefit to those around them. They see a need and they do something about it. They don't see a need and call the pastor and say, somebody should do something about this. Okay, they see a need and they go into action. Because they understand that before God, they are subordinate. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is, there are no chiefs in the kingdom of God. We, every individual Christian, is one who lives under authority. Then he uses the word stewards or managers in verse 2. Here he says, it is required of those who have been given a trust. That's the New International Translation. What does the New American Standard say here? Anybody have that translation? Verse 2? Okay, it is required of stewards. So two ways that this is explained. In the New American Standard, it's more of a literal translation. It is required that stewards, if you use the word an administrator or a trustee, Okay, that'll give you more of the notion here. One who is given a trust or a specific responsibility. In the ancient world, there were people, as in our time, who were extremely wealthy. And those that had extreme wealth were people who had more than they could personally watch over and manage. What they would do is they would hire a steward or a manager who would be put in charge of a certain category of their assets or resources. Let's say if they have a couple farms, they hire managers to take care of the properties that they can't personally oversee. That steward's responsibility is to do the will of the master or of their boss or of their leader. Okay, that, how does Paul see himself? He doesn't see himself as a chief in the body of Christ, an apostle with a capital A. It's not how Paul sees himself. He says, we come to you as servants of Christ. We come to you as stewards, those who have assumed very specific responsibility from God. Now, the question I want to go after this morning is, are you faithful? And to, and, and to go after it, I want to ask three basic questions. One is this. What does God expect from his workers? Secondly, who evaluates God's workers? Okay, who evaluates them? Who tests whether or not they have done their job well? And then thirdly, what is the attitude that protects God's workers and makes them effective? When I say God's workers here, I mean in the broadest sense, every child of God, God expects something from us. And that comes out in verse number two. Those entrusted with the secret things of God. It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove Not must prove successful, not must prove highly effective in the world's eyes. But what God requires from every one of us as His children is not perfection. He's already given us that as a gift through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, which is a great blessing, isn't it? We come into His kingdom as servants, as stewards. He gives us perfection in Christ, and then He gives us the privilege of serving Him in the work of His kingdom. What does He require? Here's what he requires. He requires that we be reliable, trustworthy in the work that he has called us to do. For those that would hire managers in the Old Testament economy, there was nothing more frustrating or disappointing than an unfaithful or dishonored steward, dishonest steward. 
about four years ago, my dad was preparing to sell his uh, business to my uh, older brother. He had a manager in his business, a steward, someone that he gave pretty much carte blanche authority in the business in terms of how finances were handled. My dad made a tragic discovery. He had a steward that didn't see themselves as a servant. I don't mean that in a demeaning kind of way, but they didn't see themselves as subordinate. They saw themselves as above the boss. You know what that person did? Financial manager, guess what they did? You can guess, can't you? They embezzled enormous amounts of money and proved unfaithful. Why? Because they didn't see themselves as a subordinate. They saw themselves as one in charge. Folks, look. All of us make this mistake. We look around us and we see highly effective or apparently highly effective people. And we want to be like them. We want the stripes on our shirt. We want the pins on our chest. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I don't, I don't care about the stripes. I don't care about the pins. He says, I have one desire. And that one desire is what God requires of every one of his stewards. And it is something that every Christian can give to God. Faithfulness. Not highly productive, highly effective, highly talented, highly gifted. And don't we all have a tendency to look at those people and say, I wish I was like... I wish I was like, I wish I had that gift or that gift. Paul says, look, here's what God requires. And it's something that every child of God can give. We can be reliable. We can be faithful in the strength that God supplies to his children. God, in his mercy, in his gracious mercy, does not choose to use impressive people. God chooses to use faithful people. As a parent, I hope that when you assess the performance of your children, that you don't uphold a standard that ultimately becomes condemning to your children. I hope that what you expect of them is what God expects of you. And that is this, that they be faithful. You say, Tim, what does it mean to be faithful? It means to be trustworthy and reliable, an individual who in every circumstance does their very best. So, when you evaluate the report card, what matters? Do the letters on the report card really matter? Well, if you're talking amongst your friends, yeah, okay. They really matter. But do they really matter? Now, here's the question that we, you know, and, and the encouragement that you ought to give to your children it is this do your best. And if I know you can do better with the resources that God has given you, I'm going to challenge you to do better. But you know what the bottom line is? For some people, a C is their best. And that is faithfulness. For some people, a C is not their best. And it is unfaithfulness. See, what God requires from us is not that we all perform at the same level in terms of productivity. But God does expect that each one of us do our very best with the resources that he has given us. Isn't that encouraging? Because we tend to look around with all the wrong standards of what success is for servants and stewards of God. 
Paul peels it back and he says, you know what God expects? You know what God requires? God requires that stewards prove to be faithful over the long haul. So the first thought I leave with you is the answer to the question. What does God want from you as a Christian? You know what he wants? He wants your commitment. He wants you to do your very best in using the gifts that he has given you to serve your family, your community, your church. Second question I want to answer is this. Which evaluation matters? Whose evaluation in your life is the one that you should be most concerned about? Now, if you're, if you're in tune with this kind of thinking, uh, and you think in terms of evaluation, who evaluates you? Who evaluates you? That answer is usually going to be threefold. Number one, other people evaluate you. Okay? And I think I can safely say that most of you evaluate other people. A Christian should evaluate themselves. And every individual alive should know that they will be one day evaluated by God. So I am a steward, a servant of God by virtue of being a Christian. Every Christian, one day, every individual for that matter, will one day stand before God to give an account of themselves. The requirement is faithfulness. The evaluations that we face are twofold. And there's just two basic categories. There are evaluations that help. They have limited value. And there is the evaluation that matters most. It is the acid test. And Paul points to all three of these evaluations in this text. And notice how he says it in verse 3. And, and it may come off as if Paul is kind of blowing off other people. But I think if that's how you read this, you're missing the point that Paul is making. In verse 3, Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. But then verse 4, he makes a contradictory statement, doesn't he? He says, my conscience is clear. Well, how can your conscience be clear if you didn't evaluate yourself? If you didn't interrogate your conscience, your heart, to make sure that it's where it belongs. So it, it's not that Paul's saying, I never look at myself, because in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, what did he say? What does he say? In reference to the Lord's table, let each one examine who? Themselves. And then let them eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So what Paul is, is saying here is that there are two levels of evaluation. One is human, one is divine. One you can fool, one you can't. One you can bluff on, the other one you can't. One judges completely based on the outside. One is only concerned with what happens inside. Paul says the evaluation of others. Almost flippantly, I care very little. Why? Why does Paul, in terms of standing before God, and in, in this context, here's what becomes apparent. The people in the church in Corinth we're taking a posture of pride and criticism towards Paul. Paul's responding to that criticism, to that judgment they've given, that Paul is about himself. Paul is into elevating himself, and he's going to blow that to smithereens in this text. And what he's going to say is, in regards to that assessment, I care very little. Why? And all of us know this in our lives. People can criticize you 
unfairly. They can misread you. But can I give you this encouragement? Don't overreact. If someone critiques your life in a way that is bona fidely unfair, don't become a reactionary. Don't let pride become the attitude of your heart. How dare they? Assess my life like that. Okay, why? Because it will create in you a bitterness towards people in your life that are very precious. Realize that they can criticize often unfairly. They can misread. They also, others, can praise prematurely and cause pride in your life. And you start to, I'm really not that bad. And then we put ourselves in a place where we can become unfaithful to God because pride has a devastating effect. Paul is not saying that the evaluation of others completely lacks value or effect. I have a friend that would often say to me, used to attend this church years ago, he would always say, Tim, when people share criticism with you, don't react. Humble your heart and say something like this. I need to think about that. I'll take that into consideration. Why? Because my, in my pride, what do I want to do? I want to put down criticism. I want people to see my life as something other than what it really is, don't I? Isn't that what we wrestle with? A desire to be seen in a certain way. What is Paul saying? And, and here's what we know from chapter 1. There are people in Corinth who are saying what? I'm on Paul's team. It, it wasn't simply criticism that he's distancing himself from. He's also distancing himself from those that are perceiving him too highly he is afraid of that. He's nervous about that. Because he knows that that will have a detrimental effect on his ability to be a servant of Christ. And so Paul says, I, I'm not overly concerned about human assessment. I need to be aware of it. I need to know that at one level, and here's the danger, I can win people's approval and miss God's. Folks, that is a humbling and fearful thought. I can have the praise of people, the applause of family members in my sphere of influence or of friends and miss God's. Because their ability, our ability to assess one another is weak. It is not a final authority. Second assessment that has limited value is the personal assessment. Paul in verse 4 makes a fascinating statement. He says, I don't judge myself. And then he goes into verse 4 and he says this. He says, my conscience is clear. Meaning, I am not, Paul is saying, living with a known area of sin in my life in regards to this situation that is under discussion. But then he makes a fascinating statement. That does not make me innocent. It I think the New American Standard says, he says, I am not by this self-evaluation acquitted of any wrong. Fascinating, isn't it? Paul says, I'm not aware of anything in my life, but that doesn't mean in this situation that I am innocent, free from guilt, free from any part of the struggle or the problem. See, folks, it's easy to receive an assessment from others and know that it is just apparently wrong. And then to assess our own lives and think, you know what, I, I, I think I'm right on this. I think I am beyond guilt on this. I think I'm, I'm, I'm clean in this situation. In this debate with my wife, I'm, I, it's all her fault. 
Okay? It's easy for us to slide there. What Paul says is this, because I see myself as innocent does not mean that I am. Well then, Paul, you're leading me to a point of frustration. If I can't trust the evaluation of people, and if I can't trust my own personal evaluation, but I am called to do that, then where do I find out what my heart is really like? How do I overcome my own bias, my own blindness, my own pride? Jeremiah warns us about it in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above everything and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What is Jeremiah saying? Have an inherent distrust for your personal evaluations. You need the evaluation of others. And so do I. And only a humble heart will receive that kind of evaluation and interrogation from others. But after I have examined myself and after I have let others examine me, Paul's saying that is not the final court. The evaluation that matters most, he says next, is this. It is the evaluation of God. God seeing through my life. God is the acid test. I can have secrets with people. I have no secrets with God. Nothing. Nothing. There's, I don't know if it's a song or a poem, but it says this. It says, God, you see through me like looking through a glass house. Folks, that is a fearful thing. That's why Paul, what is Paul saying? I'm not aware of anything in the closet in my life, but that doesn't mean there isn't anything that God doesn't want to get out of my life. What is he doing? Cultivate a humble heart so that you can be the faithful servant that God wants you and needs you to be in his church and in your family and in your community. Hebrews 4.13 kind of, rips open our lives. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from His sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we, or to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. It's for that reason that David in Psalm 139, I'll just read these verses to you. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this. David says, Oh Lord, You have searched me and You know me. Now, it's not that God has to sit down and say, okay, now I'm going to evaluate Jason Stickle. No, what is David saying? God, you know me. Because you know everything. You are omniscient. There is nothing hidden from you. You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. I don't know if you ever think about this. But God knows what is happening in the life of every individual on planet Earth. That blows my mind. I can't keep up with what's happening in my family. And it's shrinking. But God knows everything that's happening in your life. Let that comfort you too. But let it challenge you. In your responses to others, in your service to others, let it challenge you to be a person of integrity. Say, God, you have searched me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. From a distance, you perceive my thoughts. You discern my going out and my lying down. You, look folks, you are never anywhere that God isn't. That's why the psalmist later in this psalm will say, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The comfort is this, I can never get away from God, but in my sin, I am never away from God. David then says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You know what I'm going to say and why I'm going to say it. 
Do you understand why God's evaluation matters? Have you ever said something to someone and just flatly been min- misunderstood? Try to pay a compliment and it backfires? Well, what I really meant was this. And then, no, that's what you said. Okay, and they judge the motive. Right? And you find it so frustrating. Misread, but it just becomes frustrating. Don't let that build up resentment in your heart. Realize that God knows. And whether or not your mate in that specific situation can get exactly the nuance of what you meant. God knows. Receive their assessment. Apologize. Confess whatever it is you need to confess. But know ultimately, at the end of the day, God sees my heart. What He wants in His servants, His stewards, privileged workers for God, His faithfulness. And He is the one who evaluates he says, you hem me in before and behind. You have laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, is what David says. He is aware of this assessment by God and what he says then in verses 22 and 23. And I just, I just find this fascinating how David can say this to God. He says, God, in light of the fact of Psalm 139, that you knit me together, you created me, I can't escape your presence, you are everywhere, you know my thoughts, you know the words before they exit my mouth, you know me that completely. That is what causes David to go to God and say, God, search me and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in an everlasting way. Folks, what a prayer. What a prayer. You want to be effective before God, you must interrogate your heart on a regular basis. Why? It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And you might say to yourself, well, that implies the answer, no one. No, it doesn't imply that answer. The answer to that question is God. And through His Spirit, He will help you to evaluate your motives and what's going on in your life. A humble Christian who is seeking to serve God, will invite correction and input from others. But when they do that, they know that man looks on the outward appearance. That They they know that there is value from the input of others, so they receive it humbly and say, I need to take that into consideration. I hadn't thought of that. When you give correction and evaluation, do it carefully, do it humbly. They have limited value. Don't invest them with final authority. Many Christians have had their life, had their spiritual life, torn to shreds because they value too highly the input of others. It has value. It is not the final assessment that matters most. God's pleasure is what matters most. That's why later in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, to a church that is full of sin and struggles, Paul will say, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it for His honor, because one day He will assess and evaluate your life. Verse 5, He gives this amazing statement, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. You say, Tim, what is that? Judge nothing before the appointed time. I think if you go back to chapter 3, it's pointing to the day that Jesus Christ talks about when our lives will be evaluated by God. Don't judge, don't come to final verdicts until you're standing before God. What what is Paul saying? I'm not aware of any sin in my life, but when I stand before God, I may understand and realize that I had something wrong. Therefore, walk in humility. Don't assume that you're all that you should be. We're servants of God who one day will be evaluated by Him. Don't render a final verdict on your life. 
but regularly assess your life and regularly invite correction from brothers and sisters in Christ that God wants to use to move you on to what he wants you to be. What is the attitude then that protects God's workers and makes them effective? The expectation of God is faithfulness. The, the evaluation of God is final. The attitude that protects God's workers and makes them effective was the theme of our men's retreat, and it's fascinating to me that it emerges right in this text. The attitude that protects us and makes us effective is humility. The attitude that makes us tolerable is humility. The attitude that makes us effective assessors and guides for others is humility. And pride will destroy your effectiveness. Pride is what allowed my dad's bookkeeper to embezzle, to be dishonest with resources put in her charge. Pride is what will make us ineffective as servants of God. And here's the fascinating thing. Humility is what will deeply qualify you to serve God faithfully and effectively. And it is what will qualify you to stand before Him one day and hear from Him this praise, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. And if you say, Tim, what are the things he's applying here that those that work in the church of God, that work in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, are builders, they're farmers, they're family. Those are the analogies he's been building on, right? We labor there, we serve there, and in the end, what are we? We're servants. Paul's saying, I take the analogy of a manager, I take the analogy of a servant. Both of them apply in Paul's leadership and in his service. But the attitude that makes us effective is humility. He says, I've applied these things to myself for your benefit so that you will see clearly how I see myself and that you might be helped in how you should look at yourselves so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. The idea of taking pride here literally means this. You won't be puffed up and think of yourself as so much better in your assessment of the situation that you won't take pride. You won't be arrogant. Verse 7 is fascinating. Paul asked this question, who makes you different from anyone else? Interesting thought, isn't it? Who makes you different from the person sitting beside you? Well, I think the answer clearly emerges out of Psalm 139, doesn't it? God knit us together. God made us. 1 Corinthians 12 helps us to understand in the body of Christ how we're different because God has given various gifts to individuals in the body for the building up of everyone. Not for any one individual. So there's a caution against pride. But then there's this question that draws us down to humility. Why do you regard others as superior? Who makes you different? Here's the way I think we can rephrase the question. What natural talents... And spiritual gifts did you select or spontaneously create on your own? What capacities, what talents did you sit down one day and say, God, I want to be good with my hands. I want to be attractive. Obviously, I never chose that one. I want to be uh, capable of earning high income. I want to be this. I want to be that. What is Paul saying? The raw talents 
and the spiritual gifts that make up your life were not selected by you. If God has given you the gift of being attractive and winsome with people, what is it? It's a gift. If God has put you in a place where your effective labor and work has produced an unusually high income level, realize that you're using the gifts that God gave you faithfully. You're using the blessings that God gave you. And it should never allow you to look at yourself and say, look what I've done. And I wonder what's wrong with everybody else. If you were exceptionally gifted, athletic, intelligent, wealthy, attractive, obviously not describing myself, where did it come from? Do you see? What is Paul saying? Here, here is the, the end of pride. The end of pride. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, if it and the idea here clearly implied, it's a gift. It's a gift. If I walk up to Rachel today and I handed her a gift and she looked at me and said, Tim, thank me. I said, that's weird. Right? And what is God saying? What does he want to do? He wants to bring our hearts low because that's where we become effective and tolerable. That's where our gifts will be expressed in a way that will accomplish much for the glory of God. And when much is done, it will humble us. Why? We're going to see it get done and we're going to say, I, it's not me. I'm not capable of that, that gift that I had. I didn't choose that gift. God gave that gift. Look, when I was 12 and 13 years old for two years, I took guitar lessons. And I can tell you something, that there is a God-given gift for people that can play guitar, and I don't have that gift. If I said to Tony, I want to join the worship team and play guitar, and since I'm the pastor, now, <laughs> here's what would happen. I functioning outside of my area of natural giftedness would produce frustration for him and pain for you. Okay? Now, I tried my best to be a good guitar player, but when you have fingers this big, you can't do it. I can swing a hammer. I can work with wood. I can plant stuff. Okay? But that is not my talent. And what all of us need to do is realize this. God in His sovereign will has blessed us with gifts so that we can be faithful servants in the body of Christ. Do not demean the gifts that God has given you. Don't treat them as rubbish. Embrace them. Embrace them. And say, God, I want simply to be this. And it's something every Christian can do. God, I just want to be faithful. That's what I want to do. At the end of the day, when you stand before God, the question will not be, how productive were you? Because I can tell you, there are many people who gave much of their lives in a work that was completely unproductive, but I believe honored and glorified God. You can talk to someone like Victor John, who works in the nation of India, in an area called the Graveyard of Missions. For over a hundred years, there were people who labored in that field, with little effect. But if you ask Victor John, what is the secret to the success that God has brought in the work in India today? He and any wise Christian will tell you, it is those that laid the foundation before us. 
who prayed their hearts out that God would reveal himself in India. It is them to whom belongs the glory. The way that Victor described it to me, what's happening in India is this. He said, Tim, he said, we're basically like people who wandered along and bumped into a tree and fruit fell out. God made it grow. We didn't do it in our strength. And folks, when we realize that, it is going to have for us such a God-glorifying effect that we will begin to realize that every person who is committed, who is doing their best, is functioning in a way that will bring glory and honor to God. Trust His sovereign plan. Be content with the gifts that He's given you. Avoid foolish comparisons that bring only devastation and destruction. Walk humbly before your God. Walk humbly. If God has blessed you with gifts in whatever area it's in, walk humbly. Walk humbly. That aptitude, that intrinsic talent came from God. And one day, you will give an account to Him for how you have used it. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.